Coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn, this is 112BK. On the show today, hacking, hacktivism, and the law. And singer-songwriter Joan Osborne to talk about two shows she's curating for Brick House Sessions. Hi, and welcome to the show. I'm Ross Tuttle, filling in for Ashley Ford, who is on assignment. Um, you know, I've been listening a lot this week to news reports about some of the latest fighting in Syria and a UN-negotiated ceasefire that hasn't held as of today, Tuesday. The Security Council was hoping to initiate a pause in the bombings long enough to get humanitarian aid to a rebel enclave in the suburb of Damascus called Eastern Ghouta. You may remember five years ago, Bashar al-Assad's military launched a chemical weapons attack on the area. And pretty much ever since, it's been cordoned off and under siege by forces aligned with his government. A year ago, I began correspondence with a journalist inside Eastern Ghouta, and one of the details uh, she conveyed that struck me from her reports was that children were forced to use plastic bags as diapers, if they could find plastic bags. Uh, there were only a few smuggling routes in, civilians inside of the cordon have been desperately short of basic necessities ever since. The journalist has been posting a lot on Facebook as the latest fighting has intensified, and I wanted to share one of her recent dispatches uh, that she wrote on Facebook, and this is translated uh, from Arabic. Right now we are hiding ourselves at the house corner. We have spread some blankets, and then we have narrated some tales for our children to help them get some sleep and to calm a bit their heads which got fed up with guns and missile sounds. They have hardly slept, but still shuddering with their eyelids closed. My child moans before me out of exhaustion. His heart has got tired out of fear. My other child is sleeping between my arms like a little angel. His face is my sole shelter to which I resort to forget all what I suffer from. I won't tell much about my misery because the whole alphabet cannot describe it. I'm in a place and my relatives are all scattered somewhere else. I don't know how they are, despite the short distance that separates me from them. The sound of airplanes did not leave us alone since early morning. With each raid, we announce Shahada. So Shahada is the declaration of faith that one makes before they die. The journalist has been a contributor to Al Jazeera and an on-the-ground source for other media outlets, and I reached out to her again today. And though I haven't heard back, I did see that my message had been received, so at least that's encouraging. On the show today, we'll be joined by a hacker and lawyer to talk about hacktivism and its limits, if there are any. And then Joan Osborne, yes, that Joan Osborne, will be here to talk about her Womenly Hips concerts at Brick coming up next month. But first, some other news. A restaurant in Coney Island is getting some bad reviews after a promotion went live for an NRA fundraiser it's hosting in April. The restaurant, Garjulo's, had agreed to host the event prior to the shooting in Parkland, but residents and gun control activists feel it's bad form to be hosting an event that offers guns as raffle prizes. The organization behind the fundraiser is Brooklyn's Friends of NRA. Who knew? But they're not making friends in the community. Protesters aim to show up to the fundraiser no matter where it's hosted. Now, Monday was the 25th anniversary of the first World Trade Center bombing in 1993. Killed six people and injured more than 1,000. The occasion was commemorated in Lower Manhattan with a tribute to those who died. And one of those victims, Wilfredo Mercado, was from Brooklyn. But so was one of the perpetrators, Mohamed Salome. He was the one who rented the van that was used in the attack. And his license connected him to a residence near Prospect Park. It was his return to the rental agency about three times, trying to reclaim his deposit by saying the van had been stolen. That allowed the feds to unravel the plot. They begged for better subways, and all they got was more stairs. The MTA announced that the Broadway Junction stop in Cypress Hills, currently serving 100,000 passengers per day, 
will be getting two new staircases to assist with overcrowding expected after the planned 15-month L train closure, the L-pocalypse, as some people are calling it. Some riders are complaining that the new stairs are not what they asked for. With three steep flights, the stop is not handicap accessible. The MTA, for their part, says the stairs will help with pedestrian safety. Finally, Ridgewood Reservoir was added this month to the National Register of Historic Places. If you've been there, you know it's on the border of Queens and Brooklyn, and the reservoir helped transform Brooklyn from a rural farm area into a thriving city that it is today, according to the New York Times. One reason? In the 1890s, this abundant water source made it so that residents could use the flush toilets that had become popular around that time. And though the 300 million gallon reservoir was decommissioned in the 1980s, it remains a spot for bird watchers, plant enthusiasts, or just a stroll along the water. Please stay tuned for our next guest. Earlier this year, an internet activist or hacktivist was found dead in a new Gowanus hotel. The death by apparent suicide of James Dolan, co-founder of the now widely used document encryption service SecureDrop, evoked the death of another internet innovator, Aaron Swartz. Swartz hung himself in his Crown Heights apartment in 2013 as he was facing a multitude of federal charges for illegally pulling reams of documents from an MIT server. The sad coincidence is the reason we decided to bring you a segment on hacktivism and the hacker scene in Brooklyn not necessarily to puzzle over the untimely deaths of these two young, talented men, but to understand the hacktivist community and the perils and potential rewards, potential rewards for those who engage in this kind of work. To talk about that and the larger hacktivist activity that we hear about almost every day is a lawyer and hacker himself, Alex Urbelis. Thank you for coming to 112BK. It's my pleasure. Well, um, so I mentioned the, the, young, the young man who died in Brooklyn. Um, Tell me, I mean, about this scene here. Maybe there's nothing, you know, super noteworthy about it. And, you know, if you would walk the streets of Brooklyn, you might not even know that a hacker scene existed in Brooklyn. But the existence and then the, the deaths of these two individuals kind of brought to light the fact that there was maybe a rather robust hacker scene in Brooklyn. I think so. And I think in New York in general, it's been pretty strong here for, I would say, at least 30 years. Uh, I mean, hackers are sort of misfits by their very nature. And I think the Brooklyn scene, the New York scene in general, allows people to come together, to congregate, to share information. And it's always been a pretty large tent. Mm. Uh, there's no barrier to entry. You don't have to be a technical wizard when it comes to Linux exploits and zero-day exploits. You don't have to have any kind of technical knowledge, I think, to join this particular hacker community. You just have to show up. And there are these meetings that happen every so often, right? In the That's city, right. And they say anyone can come. And That's right. Kids. I mean, what happens at these meetings, and what you know, what, what's what are the conversations like? It's a it's a fascinating um, society, really. And uh, I've been a part of it for I guess about 25 years mm -hmm. since I was uh, 15 years old. They're called 2600 meetings, uh -huh. and they're named after 2600 magazine, the Hacker Quarterly, uh, which takes its name from an old hacker device called the Blue Box, which relied on a 2600 cycle tone hmm. to essentially uh, allow you to take command over the phone system. So this, this nomenclature goes back basically to the 80s. Um, and these hacker meetings happen the first Friday of every month. Uh, in Manhattan, they happen at 53rd and Lexington in the group in the Citigroup building. Mm -hmm. uh, they happen there because there happened to be a large bank of payphones, especially in the 90s, oh. and it was a it was a great time actually because 
in the magazine itself were the phone numbers of this large bank of payphones. Uh -huh. So at 5 o'clock on the first Friday of every month, all the hackers from New York, from Brooklyn, from Queens, from Manhattan, I used to sneak in myself from Long Island by telling my mother I was going to do some kind of after-school activity and sneak onto the LIRR and then take the subway up to 53rd and Lex. Uh, we would all congregate in the lobby of the Citigroup building, and hackers from all over the world would call the payphones. Hmm. And you'd be talking to hackers from Russia, hackers from Australia, and it was just a general good time. It was something we all looked forward to mm -hmm. the first Friday of every month, and it still happens the first Friday of every month. So a social time for people who might not, might not ordinarily be that social or uh, be working in solitude. A absolutely, lot of the time. absolutely. And I think back in the 90s it was even more important because. We didn't have full internet access back then. The way in which hackers communicated primarily was through BBSs, bulletin board systems, by calling into somebody else's computer. Mm -hmm. Remember modems? Mm -hmm. Way back in the day, before broadband, we used to have to dial into other people's computers mm -hmm. and write on electronic bulletin boards and exchange messages that way. Uh -huh. So this was a way for all of us to get together in real life mm -hmm. and meet each other. And it was, a, it was a great, it was an exciting time, and it still is. And to get back to the two guys um, from Brooklyn, Dolan and Swartz, um, they were for freeing information, right? Maybe getting it into the hands of journalists or whistle, helping out whistleblowers, um, kind of along the lines, uh, you know, their, their hacktivism maybe along the lines of WikiLeaks or something like that. Can you talk to me a little bit about, about that? Sure. Maybe how it was different than what, say, Anonymous does. Yeah, I, th I think there are big distinctions here, and I think hacktivism is always a difficult issue because you take something like hacking, which is by its very nature uh, non-divisive, it's very egalitarian. As I mentioned, there's no barrier to entry when it comes to hacking. It's more about a mindset of questioning the answers, questioning authority, and questioning the way systems are designed, uh, and not being afraid to suggest uh, differences when it comes to the design of those particular systems, and, uh, and not to be afraid to express criticism. So all of that, I think, is very egalitarian, but when you inject hacktivism into anything, you're necessarily injecting a viewpoint into mm. it. And when you inject a viewpoint into it, you can sometimes politicize the process, and that becomes itself very divisive. So I think hacktivism is a particularly tricky issue. And when you think about people like Swartz and Dolan, Swartz seemed to be a very curious person by nature. He was somebody who read voraciously. He devoured books and went from one subject to another. Uh, and he was just a, a generally brilliant person that everybody enamored and, and was very endearing to everyone. And James Dolan, on the other hand, was somebody who was, was a very private person. Not a gigantic amount is known about his private life, but what we do know about him is that he was an Iraq war vet who mm -hmm. served two tours as a U.S. Marine. And that may have induced some kind of PTSD and some kind of depression. We know that Aaron Swartz was... Uh, under federal indictment and facing charges, um, and that was also a very distressing time for him. Uh, but what they both seemed to be very interested in was the free flow of information, mm -hmm. the ability to ensure that whistleblowers could get information into the hands of journalists anonymously and securely, and that somehow that principle of the free flow of information was critical to society. And that, I think, was very non-political. They didn't have a political agenda. And you see these sorts of operations that Anonymous engages in, a lot of them have a viewpoint. Mm. Uh, not everybody agrees with them all the time. I think um, some people would argue that some of them are, in fact, misplaced, and some of them actually do more harm than good. And so that's why I think there's a big distinction between the general notion 
of the free flow of information mm -hmm. and then these specific hacktivist operations which are divisive by nature. I mean, yeah, you, you I mean, one, what comes to mind is WikiLeaks, right? That seemed yes. to have started as this egalitarian thing. We're just going to get everything out there, just publish everything, yes. get it out into the world, let people see it, let them evaluate it themselves. But then it became, felt like it was becoming a little bit more, I don't know, can one say partisan, you know, especially given the last election. Absolutely. I mean, and that's a big distinction I think we have to draw when it comes to hacktivism is um, it is a thing that's done to prove some kind of point or to make some kind of information available, right? So I think thinking about this like a lawyer and less like a hacker, that hacktivism should always be measured by the intentions behind it. Is the intention to get information out to the public generally? Is it to expose corruption generally without some kind of viewpoint or agenda? Or is it about the weaponizing of particular information? Mm. And I think with the DNC attacks, we saw the latter there. If you look at the timing, if you look at the targets, and you look at the effect that it had, all within a very short span of time leading up to the elections, I think there's no doubt in anybody's mind that this was a weaponized type of hacktivism attack, mm -hmm. which, if you define hacktivism in a, for, in a kind of narrower way, it may not even qualify as a hacktivism attack. It may have been a malicious attack hmm. by a malicious actor. Right. Wow. Well, so, I mean, and to, to kind of go along those lines about this malicious attack and, you know, sort of this espionage that was going on and what the indictments that have just been handed down demonstrate is the Russian involvement and what mm. was it, the Internet um, Research Agency, you know, the yes. IRA. <laughs> yes. I mean, are they, is that hacktivism or is that just, how do you define that? Uh, that seems to me to be an information operation that was sponsored by a foreign adversary. Uh -huh. And I don't think that that necessarily would qualify as a hacktivism operation. Right. I mean, on the one hand, they are getting information out about the DNC to the general public, mm -hmm. but they did it with an intention to disrupt our political process. Mm -hmm. So that, I think, is the line that we have to divide. Right. Uh, that's the dividing line, rather, mm -hmm. between hacktivism and weaponized information operations. And that's what I think we saw mm -hmm. through the Internet Research Agency mm -hmm. and the various actors that were behind it were these very clear intentions right. to do something specific with our political process mm -hmm. and to benefit Donald Trump. Right. Uh, and, you know, we're expecting that this is going to happen again in this cycle in the midterm elections. Do you have any sense of how things are being, how this is being mitigated or if any, the government is doing anything? I know Trump is not saying anything about this, but maybe things are happening behind the scenes. I think it's a really sad situation that we have right now where the federal government is afraid to come out and make any large-scale pronouncements about what we're doing to protect ourselves against mm -hmm. this. I know that there has been a lot of concern that we're going to be facing the very same attacks in 2018 that we faced previous to this. And through the indictments that were released last week by Robert Mueller, we know more specifics about what they were targeting. It wasn't just the DNC that they were going after. And in fact, I discussed it on this program prior to mm -hmm. the uh, actual or elections the of 2016. On BK Live. That's right, yeah. on BK Live. We discussed this prior to the actual election. Mm -hmm that it was quite likely that the Russians would, in fact, target things like voter registration rolls and mm -hmm. voter databases and these various hodgepodges of state systems. Mm -hmm. And the indictment that came out demonstrated to us that that was, in fact, true, mm -hmm. that the Russians did, in fact, target these particular technological processes that keep records of voters, voter registration rolls. They were probing systems that contained that. Um, and I think that's really troubling, too, because, as I mentioned, it's a hodgepodge of systems. There's no one unified security system for this. There's no way that we can 
look at each state system, which is often run on a county-by-county -county basis mm -hmm. in, in some instances, and determine that all of them are secure across the country. Mm -hmm. um, another thing that we talked about on BK Live was, you know, maybe that's a good thing. Because that means that if it's there is no unified system, exactly, it's decentralized right. and there's no singular way to get at all of Everything. the voter registration right. rolls. So it's more of a feature rather than a flaw. I'm not particularly right. fond of that platitude, but in the situation it might be uh, appropriate. Yeah, well, I wish we had more time to talk about this. I mean, there's so much more to cover and uncover about this and understand what kind of you know, situation we're going to find ourselves in in 2018 with these elections. Uh, I know a lot of concern about that, but um, unfortunately we're out of time. It goes <laughs> quickly. Right. Um, but we'd love to have you back and, and to talk more about this. Anytime, Alex. Anytime. Okay. Always a pleasure. All right. Thanks so much, Alex. Thank you. Our next guest, originally from Kentucky, now a proud Brooklynite, is best known for her chart-topping hit of the 90s, One of Us. I confess I haven't been able to stop singing it since I found I'd have the pleasure of doing this interview. But you may not recall that she was nominated for a Grammy for Best Blues Album in 2013. We're happy to have on the show the versatile and multi-talented Joan Osborne, whose Womenly Hips Presents will be presenting a couple of shows here at Brick House Sessions next month. Thanks for coming on 112BK. Thank you for having me. So, as I said in the open, you're best known, I guess one might say, for one of us, the uh -huh. hit in the 90s. Um, but your Grammy came from a blues album in 2013. I know it's a lot of time in between, but can you tell me about those intervening years and kind of how your, how your career has evolved? Yeah, well, I, I find that at this point, um, I'm in a, a really good spot uh, because I, uh, I got into doing this not to, you know, reach some sort of big fortune and fame, but because I really uh, got sucked into the music scene in New York City mm. in the early 90s and just fell in love with it, in particular the blues scene that was happening there. So I sort of always had it in mind that I wanted to be a lifelong musician and singer and artist. And the first album you know, had this amazing success, which I didn't really anticipate, and it almost sort of knocked me off course for a little bit and knocked me for a loop. Um, but I've sort of gotten back to this point where I've got an audience that follows me and, you know, is enough of a, enough of a fan base where I can continue to make records and continue to go on tour and support myself and my family and just sort of be a working artist. And I don't have a lot of the uh, sort of people standing over me and saying, oh, we need you to do this and we need you to do that, that maybe someone in that pop uh, spotlight uh, would have. So I, I have a lot of freedom in, in that respect. I was wondering about that, because I know a lot, a lot of times artists, they get cut, they're connected with a label and they put out a hit, and then the label's like, okay, what's the next hit? Come on, come on, you gotta do mm -hmm. it. And what do you do if the inspiration isn't there? What do you do if, you know, it takes time for you to be able to, you know, develop something that is really meaningful to you and that, you know, can have that potential? Yeah, well, in my case, I failed to, to uh, give them that follow-up uh, hit and I got dropped from that label. Oh, no. So there was some, yeah, but, I, you know, which certainly hurt at the time. But, um, but I have to say, I, I don't know that I would have really thrived in that situation of trying to continue to make hits and, and be... Uh, that kind of pop persona and and I feel like I've gotten to this really wonderful place You know, I, I always admired artists like Tom Waits, you know, who were able to really sort of carve their own path and do what they wanted to do and uh, I would never compare myself to Tom Waits, but I, I sort of am in a similar position where I'm kind of able to do what pleases me and I have enough of a fan base as I said who have been really loyal to me over the years so I can continue to do it. 
Well, that's great. That's great. So maybe it was a bit of a blessing. Yeah. Um, one, I just want to ask one more question about one of us. You filmed the video in Coney Island. Yeah. Why was that? Uh, well, there was something about just sort of the populous, you know, energy of a place like Coney Island. You have all different kinds of people, and it's very sort of gritty, and in particular it was back then when we made that that video. And, you know, there are nuns walking up the boardwalk, and there's, you know, kids doing skateboard tricks, and pe just people from all possible mm -hmm. walks of life. So there was uh, a real sort of sense of all humanity is gathered here, and, you know, there, there were spiritual themes in the song, which we wanted to kind of touch on in the video. And uh, I, I feel like it worked out perfectly as a location. Great, yeah, I mean, it's a pretty visual visual place. Um, so I also said in the open, you're a proud Brooklynite. I, I hope I wasn't making any assumptions, but... How about being proud? Yeah, about <laughs> oh, being no, proud and a proud yeah. Brooklynite. Uh, what led you to make your home here? Uh, well, I actually moved here from Kentucky to go to film school at NYU, and I was a um, student studying filmmaking um, and that's what I thought I was going to do for my living. I thought I was going to become maybe a documentary filmmaker because I got very interested in that. Uh, but, uh, you know, accidentally went into a blues club one night with a guy who invited me out for a drink, and there was a piano player there playing piano, and this guy dared me to go up and sing um, and said, I'll buy the drinks if, you know, if you do that. So, so I did. And, you know, I had done a little bit of singing as a girl in school, never, you know, wow, once yeah. thinking, you know, that a kid from a little town in Kentucky was going to be able to have a singing career. Um, but <clears throat> I, you know, I, I sang and this, this piano player said, that's pretty good. You know, you should come back. We have an open mic night here every Tuesday night. So this place was close enough to my apartment uh -huh. that it was very easy for me to go over there. And so I started going every Tuesday night to this open mic night. And it was a blues club. And I really just sort of fell in love with the expressiveness of that kind of singing and the community of other musicians and other clubs that was happening around that time. And it was just this whole world that had been right there all along that I hadn't really known about while I was studying, mm. and it just sort of opened up to me. And uh, you know, I was really fortunate that I kind of stumbled into this thing that that really felt like a calling. Hmm. So a bit different than the Bob Dylan story, who kind of came here as a troubadour, looking to sing, going to the clubs. Mm -hmm. uh, you came here, wanted to be a filmmaker, but fell into the scene. Yeah, complete singing. accident. Yeah. But you know, speaking of Bob Dylan, your latest album is Bob Dylan songs that yeah. you interpreted. Songs of Bob Dylan. Yeah. yeah. Tell, mm -hmm. tell me about that. And I, I read um, that you you wrote um, that some of his songs are edged, or, or you were quoted, some of his songs are edged with cruelty and misogyny. And I wonder if you, um, you know, taking those songs on, mm -hmm. if you're trying to subvert that narrative a little bit, or are you just paying homage to a great uh, lyricist? You know, it's funny that you pulled that quote out. I mean, I was, uh, I was talking about just the, the entirety of his material. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he has these songs which are just delicate, tender, beautiful love songs. And then he also has these political diatribe songs. And he has songs which are sort of comical and surreal. And and yes, it. when I first encountered Dylan's music, some of the songs did have what seemed to me this edge of cruelty and even misogyny. And it sort of turned me off in the beginning. And so it took me a little bit of time to find my way into what I connected with about his material. Mm. And, and I think it's interesting to be someone, uh, you know, like me, a female uh, who's had the kind of, you know, life trajectory that I've had to take on this material because, um, 
it does give a little bit of a different flavor to it. And that's, you know, when you're covering someone else's songs, especially someone as iconic as Dylan, you don't want to just go in there and do what he's already done with them, because then really what's the point? Right. Uh, you want to find something, some sort of sweet spot where what you have, your voice or your sensibility, mm -hmm. and what the song has can connect in a way that really sort of makes it blossom mm -hmm. um, and allows people to hear something new in the material. Uh, and maybe one of the things, you know, we do a version not, it hasn't been recorded yet, but we're sort of saving it for the next volume, hmm. uh, is a version of Just Like a Woman, right. which I, it's a song that I never liked huh. um, until we that started messing around either. with it. Um, yeah, because I just I just felt like uh, he was defining what, what a woman is in this sort of limited way, and I didn't like it. Um, but in, in the environment that we're in right now, where you have a lot of people coming out and talking about uh, you know, their trans experience and, and what is a woman and, and does a person who was born a man and becomes a woman, mm -hmm. does he have the right to call himself, he or she have the right to call himself a, a female? You know, and with all of these questions and people who are sort of coming out and, and declaring themselves and their right to uh, decide what their gender is going to be, I sort of looked at the song in this different way and, and had this whole image of how to present it in that way and how to do it in that way with thinking of these people, and uh, and it sort of opened up uh, a way to interpret the song that yeah. I felt was, was sort of interesting and unique, and, and we've gotten some really uh, great reactions from people cool. uh, when we perform it live. So. Cool, so we have another installment to look forward to, yeah. another yeah. volume, great. Ooh. Well, before we run out of time, we should talk okay. about the shows here, yeah. and so it looks like you programmed a pretty eclectic collection. Um, mm -hmm. of acts. Can you tell me why you chose those acts and what people can expect if they come come to see him next yeah. month? Yeah. Well, um, this was something that I did as a, sort of a reaction to um, things that are happening in our world and our culture right now. You know, I think it's no secret that our country is really divided and there's a lot of really negative, uh, you know, uh, energy that's that's happening right now. And, and some uh, you know, women who are being exploited will come forward and try to talk about that, and then there's, you know, there's a backlash against them. And I just felt like this is a moment when we really need women's voices and women artists to step forward, and they need to be supported and, and put out there. So this series is just my small way of, uh, of using whatever connections and influence I have to uh, try to put forward some women artists' voices. And I didn't want it to be any particular musical style. I think part of the, the beauty of that, of the idea, is that it can be women from all different uh, backgrounds and all different musical styles, and, and ha to have it be very eclectic. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the, some of the first people that I thought of are Les Nubian, who mm -hmm. will be headlining the show on March 1st, uh, because they have this very unique sort of uh, mixture of influences uh, from Europe and from Africa, and they're longtime Brooklyn residents themselves now. Oh, okay. um, so they have this uh, particular perspective coming from all these different parts of the world uh, that's reflected in their music. And plus, they're just they're beautiful singers and yeah. these very sort of this goddess sort of presence. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to them being the open uh, being the headliner for the the first show. Mm -hmm. And then there's a, a Brooklyn-based 
funk band, uh, IGBO, uh -huh. um, that uh, I'm less familiar with, but I'm really excited to. Uh, yeah, the I things think they were, they were called um, Dream, their music is called Dream Funk or something okay. like that. Yeah. That's what the description That sounds was. good to me. <laughs> yeah. And then on the on the 8th, uh -huh. oh, is it the 8th, is the Birds of Chicago? Yes, okay. yes. Birds of Chicago, which is, is a group a that, uh, well, they, they sort of uh, have the Americana, mm -hmm. you know, label put on them. But I heard them first when I was in a, a tour bus in Holland mm. uh, last year. I was uh, just, you know, going along from, from town to town doing a tour of my own, and the, the driver had this music on, and I kept hearing this music, and I'm like, who is this? This is amazing. <laughs> and so I went up and, and asked him, and he said, oh, it's Birds of Chicago. Oh, so, uh, yeah, so uh, I, I'm very excited that they were available and able to do this. Mm -hmm. And the opener for that show is a woman named Victory Boyd, mm -hmm. who I just recently met at a John Lennon tribute here in okay. the city. And uh, again, an incredibly powerful, soulful mm -hmm. voice and a real deep energy. Uh, we met in the dressing room backstage and she was sort of rehearsing her song and I kind of like tiptoed over and started singing a little harmony with her yeah. and uh, it was a really nice moment. And you're gonna get on stage for some of these, maybe some uh, The songs rumors as well? are oh, that okay. I might come in and, and do right. a little bit here and well, there, you know. I guess I, our, the listeners and the audience here will have to come and see. They will if, have to find out, If you out. indeed yeah. do get on stage, well, I wish we mm -hmm. had more time. It'd be great. I'm assuming that if people want to know more about this, they can go to Brick's website and find out. Yes, they um, can, Brickhouse, yeah. Uh, sessions. Yeah, the, uh, the tickets for the Le Nubian show, there are a few left, but okay. you really need to get on it. And right. uh, great. so uh, hopefully right, well, we'll see you there. It's yeah. so, so great to have you here. So thank happy you. to meet you. And hopefully we'll have you back when you have your next uh, volume of Dylan's songs. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Thanks a lot. Thank you. 112BK is hosted by me, Ashley C. Ford, and is written and produced by Ross Tuttle. It's also produced by Fred Brown, Shireen Barty, Emily Bogosian, Naeem Van, Fritzy Roberts, Charmaine Lamb, and is edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer. Our show is recorded by Eric Hogsack, Antonio Rosario, Leslie Hayes, and Steve DeSev. And our theme music was composed and produced by Brad Parker. Our executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias.